first, thank you very much for hosting us, uh, Teresa. We really, really appreciate that very much. We're Skyler, my friend from Build On, and I are very happy to be here. And um, I want to open by talking about this word ignition. And the first time I heard the word ignition used in a meaningful way was in a remote African village in the heart of Malawi. When I heard this guy say ignition the way he said it, it changed the way I thought about the word. It changed the way I was living my life to an extent. So we'll talk more about that because it is one of the themes in the book. But first, I want to introduce you to this kid. His name is Jimmy Arzu. Do you guys, can you drop the lights a little bit? We'll get a little more clarity on the photos. As long as nobody falls asleep. I'll wake you up if you do, and it, and it will be embarrassing. <laughs> um, so I took this picture of Jimmy on top of a 22-story Section 8 housing project in the South Bronx. Jimmy lives on the 19th floor. And when you look out from Jimmy's rooftop, this is what you see. The economically poorest con congressional district in the United States and also one of the most dangerous. And in a six-block space, there's 55,000 people living below the U.S. poverty line. Jimmy has managed to navigate his way through, through this neighborhood for many years, primarily through his passion for basketball, for sports. And the kid, he's pretty good, too. Good news is there's a court right next to his building. The bad news is that it's gang turf. And Jimmy had been under a lot of pressure for many years to affiliate with the gang from, from, me, from a really young age. And finally, when he was 14 years old, the two guys running the crew convinced Jimmy to join. These are not the same two guys. These are the guys running it now. The guys that were running it back when Jimmy joined, one's in jail for murder and the other guy got shot. The rival gang across the street are the blood, so it's a very dangerous gang. So Jimmy's 14, he's in a gang. When he turns 15, his mother passed away. So he's living in Section 8, he's in a gang, he's affiliated, and he's an orphan. In short, Jimmy Arzu is at ground zero for what has become a national crisis. Now, more than any other time in the history of the United States, high school students are dropping out. Record numbers. And when they drop out, they're very likely to get involved in gang activities, become incarcerated. In fact, 88% of everybody incarcerated right now are high school dropouts. This is where the pipeline to prison begins. And it's got to be shut down. It is so dramatic that every 26 seconds, somebody drops out of high school. We just lost somebody in the last 26 seconds. What is going to happen to Jimmy Arzu? Is he going to become a statistic? I do not know. You know, we are not a charity at Build On. We are not trying to rescue kids like Jimmy Arzu. We want to empower Jimmy to break the cycle of poverty, illiteracy, and low expectations through service and education. And we have set up programs across the United States, in Detroit, Chicago, Oakland, San Francisco, the South Bronx, East New York, Harlem, Boston, Philadelphia, hopefully sometime soon Boston. Or, uh, I know, I was going to say sometime soon Baltimore and, and, and D.C., and it has become a movement. Our kids are united behind these three principles. We run service learning programs in, the, in 62 high schools across the country. The curriculum is a little bit unorthodox, though. Our students map out their communities. They look at the issues. They look at the challenges. And they decide how they can contribute, how they can turn things around. They learn about issues surrounding extreme poverty in developing countries and the correlations between that and education, illiteracy. They take action by doing service, going out into their communities to try and turn things around, and they change the world by building schools. So students have united behind service, and they have stepped up in their communities. They're working with elders going into nursing homes. They're going into to elementary schools. Okay, so our students are working with elders, they're working with young children, they're tutoring, they're mentoring, letting these kids know that somebody's got their back, that somebody's watching out for them. One of the most inspiring service initiatives in the last school year came from a bunch of kids on the south side of Chicago at a, at a place called Juarez High School. We work with about 100 kids from that particular high school every week. Fifteen of them decided that they wanted to work with adults that have developmental disabilities. And they started in September and have been doing it every week since. 
they came back after the first time working with this community of people. And they said, we had no idea we could make this kind of difference in somebody's life. What I found out is that the 15 kids that initiated that service, they themselves have several different kinds of learning disabilities. They have IEPs, they're part of special education, the program at their school. My own son has several learning disabilities. So for me, this was powerful and inspiring because these kids are showing everybody, showing me, showing all of us that we all have something to share, that we all have something to contribute. I've seen our kids serving meals in shelters for homeless veterans. I've seen these kids serving meals to folks that are HIV positive and have AIDS. And I've seen our kids serving meals in shelters where they themselves have gotten their own meals. And I've seen our kids lifting up young children with physical disabilities. All told, our students have contributed over 1.3 million hours of service across the United States. This is the ignition I was talking about. These same students have helped us build 624 schools in some of the economically poorest countries on the planet. And I recently had an opportunity to go to Malawi, where we've built over 100 schools. But I want to go back in time and talk about the first school that we ever built in Malawi, which I write about extensively in the book. It's the first school we ever built in Africa, and it's in a place called Missomali Village, 20 years ago. My brother and I arrive in this place called Missomali. This is the school that they had. About 150 kids were attending the school when we got there. Just this thatch shot, maybe 12 of them girls. Our idea was that we were going to live in that community, learn from the elders how to unite, how to work together, how to build this school. And we wouldn't leave until we got that school built. That was our idea. And we talked to the community and we said, we can do this. But you've got to contribute all the unskilled labor to build the school. It's for your children. And you've got to send your daughters to school in equal numbers with your sons. We cannot break the cycle of extreme poverty unless everybody has access to education. It is, it is, they, mothers are the ones that elevate families out of poverty. Mothers are the ones that elevate communities out of poverty. Not just in Africa, but here in the United States. It's essential. They agreed, and we got busy digging the foundation. The community came out in force. This guy was on the, work site, on the work site every single day. His name is Stephen Tombani. This guy had my back. He became one of my closest friends. He also became my mentor. You know, he, be, he, he guided me in so many different ways. Now, the walls were, were doing well. The walls are starting to rise. Everything's coming along nicely until my brother Dave, who's on the left here, collapsed from malaria and almost died. And then eight days later, I had a 104-degree fever. Lost consciousness, collapsed, and apparently went into to convulsions. And by the grace of God, my brother Dave was strong enough to drag me into one of two hospitals that they had in the entire country at the time. And I was out for a couple of days, and when I, when I came to, I saw all these puncture marks and bruises up and down both of my forearms. Needle marks. I had no idea how they had gotten there. I was completely confused and a little freaked out because at that time, the, the HIV AIDS infection rates were over 30% nationally in Malawi. And I don't know what happened. And all of a sudden, the doctor comes into my room and he explained two more hours away from this hospital and you would have been dead. My veins had already begun to collapse. I had dysentery and malaria. So it was pretty rough. Luckily, they finally got the IV in, and they saved my life. And I was actually back on my feet in a couple of days and doing pretty good, I thought. My brother Dave had a different strain of malaria, so he had to come back to the States to recover. I decided to go back to the village to try and finish building that school. And as I'm walking the last maybe four or five miles into the community, I'm starting to see the, the, the elders and the families that I recognize. And I realize that when they contract malaria, they do not have a near-death experience like I did. They die. And wh why did I survive and they don't? It's because of extreme poverty. They don't have the $20 it took to make it into that hospital. They don't have $2 for a mosquito net. They don't have any money for medications. 
And I was overwhelmed because that year alone, a million people died from malaria, more than died from AIDS. What do you do in the face of that? And I almost turned around and started walking away from the village. But then I thought to myself, if we could get that school built, then maybe, maybe they can break that cycle of extreme poverty through education. So I kept walking and made it back to the village. And a couple of weeks later, something beautiful happened. Stephen's wife had their first child, beautiful little baby girl named Ruthie. And, and, you know, we had a rough time at that point. And, and this was beautiful. I thought, this is a good omen. Some things are going to turn our way now. I'm holding the baby in my arms, inhaling the moment, until Stephen looked me in the eye and said, we're going to get that school built, right? You know, and, and I could sense the desperation in his voice. But, man, I was terrified. I had a pit in my stomach. People around me were dying. And I was pretty sure that we weren't going to be able to get the school built. But I knew that Stephen was never going to give up. This guy would not stop. All that happened 20 years ago. And, and, and not too long ago, I was back in Malawi, this time with a team of kids. Kids from our schools, from our programs. About 18 of us. And we rolled into this extremely remote village in a different part of the country. Hundreds of people come to welcome us. These kids get off the bus and they are overwhelmed. A lot of them very emotional. They've never experienced this kind of an outpouring. All the drumming and the dancing and the singing, the celebration. This kid is exuberant. He is so fired up. You know who it is? This is Jimmy Arzu. He made some positive choices. He quit the gang. He stayed in school. He got involved in the program. And here he is about ready to build a school in Africa. What are the odds of something like that happening? Amazing. Amazing to me. So we've got to settle everybody down and, 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 and have this community meeting. There's like 400 people there. Everybody cools down. We're, we're talking to them. We're, <coughs> excuse me. We're explaining. Once again, 20 years later, hundreds of schools later, we can build it, but you've got to contribute the labor. And you've got to send your daughters to school in equal numbers with your sons. And we ask the community members all to sign a covenant with their commitment to doing that. And the people line up. It takes three hours, almost four hours, to sign this covenant. Because very few people could actually sign their names. All they could do is add their fingerprints and their thumbprints. But not a single person drifted away, even though it's over 100 degrees out there. Not a single person walked away until everybody signed that covenant. This woman's name is Felicia. And, and she, she's proudly thumbprinting this covenant. Then she looks at me and she says, you know, I'm 86 years old. You know, I had 11 children. Only four of them survived. But I've got grandchildren now. Then she put her hand on her heart. And she said, now I can die in peace knowing that my grandchildren have a school and a future. That's what she said. Jimmy Arzu signs this covenant. Everybody in that community knows what's riding on this project. A couple days later, Jimmy's like, man, I want to go talk to that woman, Felicia. Can we go see her? So we find out where she lives. She lives on the, like, the edge of the village. It's like a 40-minute walk to get out to her little hut. We go out there, we sit down with her, and I'm overhearing this conversation between Jimmy and Felicia. And, and Felicia finally explains to her, and she says, you know, my, my youngest daughter died in childbirth, but the baby survived. And Jimmy's like, oh yeah? When did that happen? And she said, 15 years ago. And Jimmy's like, oh, well, what happened to the baby? Where's the baby now? And she said, sitting right next to you. And Jimmy immediately bonded with his kid, Alex Bonda. Same age, both lost their mothers. He puts his hand on his shoulder, and he literally looks up into the sky. And he says, you know, our mothers are watching us right now. We got to stay in school. We got to build this school. He said, we got to make our mothers proud. Jimmy Arzu made his mother proud. 
digging the foundation for that school, hauling cement, mixing concrete, laying the bricks for the walls of a school that would be there for 100 years, educating generations of children. And we have now built 624 of these schools around the world. But what about Miss Somali Village? Did we get that school built? Is that one of the 624? It is. It was the most difficult, probably the most dangerous project in our 22-year history now. But we got it built. When I left that village, there were 150 kids attending that brand new school. But I did not look back, and I never went back. I did not want to go back. Too many crazy things happened there. But after 20 years, I felt like it's time. I got to go and see what happened. And, 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 and so it was about 14 hours in a four-wheel drive vehicle to get there. It's only a couple hundred miles, but it, took, it was not even probably 150 miles. But it took forever to get there. We get to this village, and I was devastated. I found out that our construction supervisor, his two little boys, his, his, his wife, they all died from AIDS. The chief of the village died from AIDS. And, and the community came out to welcome me, hundreds of people, to celebrate. But man, my knees buckled. I, I couldn't even walk. I was literally, I felt this, this paralysis. And I can't find my friend Stephen. There's all these people, hundreds of people. I'm looking for Stephen. Where's Stephen? I don't know where he is. I'm looking. 15 minutes go by. I can't find him. 20 minutes. And I can't find Stephen. But then he emerged from the crowd. Thank God. Alive. Healthy. And I will never forget this moment. Because I will never forget what Stephen gave to me. In, my, in one of my darkest moments of fear. And desperation. Stephen was there. He gave me the courage to keep going. To not give up. And then he led me to the center of the village. And I was shocked because I did not know which school we built. Instead of 150 kids attending one school, there's 1,000 kids going to five schools. They went on to build four more schools without us. 533 of the students are girls. We had nothing to do with those other four schools. They did that. Stephen did that. And we're standing there, and I'm just completely overwhelmed. And this is amazing, this moment. And then I start thinking about Ruthie. And I'm a little worried. How do I ask Stephen? Because a lot of babies in Malawi don't survive. They don't make it. So finally I just looked over. I said, Stephen, how about Ruthie? Is she with us? Is she here? And he smiled and nodded and introduced me to his beautiful 20-year-old daughter. And he is beaming with pride when he explains that Ruthie went to the school that we built. She went to all five of those schools. And then he lowers his voice. And he's whispering, and i got to get closer because I can't hear him. And he says, you know, I'm an illiterate man. I can't read or write. I can't even sign my own name. But Ruthie, she became a teacher. She is an educator. And she will lift up my family's name forever. That's what he said. And then he looked at me and he said, you are the ignition. And, you know, like you think about the definition, the act of starting a fire, so an engine begins to work. I look back and I say, no, Stephen, you are the ignition. You lit that fire 20 years ago. And now Ruthie is lighting fires. And education is a fire that can never be put out. And now Jimmy Arzu is lighting fires. Metaphorically, of course. <laughs> is Jimmy a statistic? Actually, he is. But now he's part of this number. 
94% of the kids that get involved in this program not only graduate, they go to college. We don't understand it because we're not an academic program. We're a service and service learning program. You, students unite. They, they, they transform their communities through service and they change the world by building schools. But why are they coming to school? Why are they graduating? Why are they going to college? It's been the subject of a lot of evaluations. And they all point to the same thing. Brandeis did the most extensive of these evaluations. 120-page report. And they defined a causal link between our programs and improved academic engagement and achievement of the kids. They point to 10 outcomes that drive this. And, and it's, it goes on and on. But to me, it boils down to one word. Ignition. These kids just want to start a fire. When they realize what they can do, what they can accomplish, they elevate expectations for their community, for themselves. And there is nothing that can stop them. There are now 85,000 children, parents, and grandparents attending the schools that we've built around the world every day. Today, in fact, right now, somewhere, tens of thousands of kids are going to schools because of people like Jimmy Arzu. I learned from Stephen that if we have the courage to confront our fears, we can lead much bigger lives. So I encourage you to think about what you are passionate about. Think about what you know needs to change. Think about what you can start or what you can be involved in. Confront your fears if you have them, and we all do. Take that first step and light that fire. Because that flame that you light can never be put out. Thank you all very much for being here tonight. Somebody grab the lights for me. What's that? What's it? Was I at? No, I have not been on 60 Minutes. Nope. <laughs> not yet. Yeah. So, so uh, this is the Q&A time. What do you guys have any questions, thoughts, comments? Yes? How do we find what? How do we fund it? So um, this year our budget is $13 million. And, and with that, we will build 130 schools uh, around the world. And we, what's that? Where do you get your money? We get it from three sources. I was getting to that. Okay, we get our money from individuals that contribute to build on. They provide about 40% of our funding. People that give us small gifts from $5 up to some folks that are able to give us a quarter of a million dollars. Okay, so that's one way that we raise money. We, let me finish answering this question, and I'll get to yours. And we got to give some other people a chance too, because you and I have had a nice conversation already. I wish. No, I don't know that guy. That would be good. Not yet. Yes, not yet. Um, so, uh, so that's about forty to forty-five percent of our funding. We also get a lot of money from different foundations. The Kellogg Foundation, for instance, funds a lot of our work up in ha down in Haiti. Um, the Kresge Foundation has been very generous in the past. And then a lot of family foundations. And then we get a bunch of money from different corporations. GE's a huge supporter. Um, Ogilvy is a, is a big supporter. A lot of different corporations that get involved and, and their employees not only work alongside our kids in places like the South Bronx and the west side of Chicago and south side of Chicago, but they actually go out and build schools. They spend time living with these community members, working side by side with them to build schools. Um, so that, that's the primary source of our funding. Thank you. Uh, it's, 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 uh, we're, we're fortunate. Yes? Um, I was wondering, I'm, I'm familiar with different programs. They're, the mics are for, because um, of the podcast, right? Yeah, okay. Hi. 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 I'm familiar with different programs where people are trying to get um, countries to educate their girls, yep. which is so important. And there's a lot of resistance because traditionally in many places, girls were seen as 
not, it didn't make an economic sense for them to educate their daughters. They were um, going to be married young and go off and become a part of a different family. So um, there's been a lot of resistance in places. So I was wondering where you've been, if you've encountered much resistance, and if so, how do you work around Well, th thank you. What's your name? Darlene. Darlene, thanks for asking that question. It's a good question. So the answer, the short answer is yes. We work in, in a lot of countries where there is horrible gender discrimination. In, in West Africa, in Mali, in Senegal, in Burkina Faso, uh, where female genital mutilation is, is still predominant, where girls are often married off at the age of 14 or 15 years old to a man they've never met, and they become one of two, three, or four wives. It's terrible. And we have... We have hunkered down and worked in these communities and insisted on gender equity in all the schools that we build. And you saw the covenant process. So before we get to that point, we asked the community to set up a committee of six women and six men that lead the project, that organize the community, and then help to sustain the school. Ministries of Education provide the teachers, but the community runs that school. And then... Um, on the work site, we, we, we make sure that women have equal access and do the same important work that men do every day that we're out there. And to build those 624 schools, villagers have contributed 1.1 million volunteer work days, right? And women have led this. And so the result is, out of the 85,000 children, parents, and grandparents attending our schools, 50% exactly are girls. Of the, of, the, of the children's students. 72% of the adult students are women. And it's not, we do nothing more than what I explained. We don't preach about the importance, though we feel strongly about it, of gender equity. We just make sure that we get buy-in from the very beginning so that girls have access to education. And it, it's a very, it seems very simple, and it is, and I think that's why it works. So that's, I'm glad you asked that question. I could go on about that for like another hour, but I better not. Yep. Oh boy, that's a good question. Um, it's clearly we write extensively about that in the book, and I wish my co-writer Jim Hirsch was here. He's phenomenal. Um, so um, I, I uh, after college, I worked a couple jobs and saved as much money as I could and bought a backpack and hitchhiked around the world for about a year. And this is like the, the late 1980s. And um, I spent a lot of time in developing countries. And the first developing country I visited was India. And at that time, you know, I'm from a small town in Michigan, so I was really overwhelmed by the, the, the extreme poverty that I experienced there. It was, to me, it was, it was just, I, I didn't know how to deal with the injustice of it. And then I went to Nepal, you know, because I wanted to go into the mountains and check out Mount Everest, and I thought, you know, I love mountains. But I was, I went from the, the frying pan into the fire because the, the poverty index is much worse in Nepal. Nepal is the second poor, economically the second poorest country in Asia, only next to Afghanistan. Did not know that. Um, and, but I still went, and I was climbing up into the mountains, and uh, it took, I don't know, I was like up there for like 26 or 27 days, but like on day seven or day eight, I was passing through a village where they were celebrating the opening of a school. And it was a two-day celebration. I got there. I was only there for like an hour. It was, it was the monsoon, so it's, it, I'm still in the jungle before I even got to the mountains. And I'm, I'm just drying off in this hut, you know, and, and try, peeling the leeches back and all that stuff. And, um, and then I, well, I don't, if you've, you get it there. They don't hurt, but they sure are nasty, aren't they? I don't know. So I was just drying off, drinking a little cup of tea. I'm in this hut. I look around. They're having this huge celebration. And there's probably 100 people dancing outside in the rain. And it was, they were celebrating a school that they had built. Two-day celebration. They never went home. I was there for the end of the second day. They were, they were drinking the Roxy, the, the rice wine. So it was very interesting. So we... we um, or I, I, nobody, I was alone at that time. So I had seen this, and I think that's where the seed was planted. You know, I'd, and, and, and when I'd, I got back to the States maybe three or four months later, and I saw poverty in our own country much differently after that, especially in American inner cities. 
And I saw the desperation, you know. I saw the, the, the violence, the drugs, all the things that are happening in American cities. But I also saw that same hope and determination that community members had in that village in Nepal. You know, especially with our youth. And I wanted to act on that experience, but I completely chickened out. And, and uh, <laughs> took a job with GE Capital in corporate finance instead. And, and, um, and I, did, I, was in, I did that for not long, maybe 15 or 16 months. And, um, and finally got the courage up to, to quit GE and, and start up Build On. And that's the very short version. Of, oh, thanks. That's nice. But the longer version's in the book, if you really want to know. Yes. You. Oh, yeah, the mic. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you um, maybe two questions, but one of sure. them. Is this one? Yep, we got you. Um, uh, you know, Bill Clinton has a, a, a big initiative, too. I forget the name of it. Anybody know? Clinton Global Clinton Initiative. Global Initiative. Yep. Uh, he'd probably be interested in doing. He, I think he does things like that around the world too, which you're yeah. doing. And and if they do, and, and education in itself is a great thing too. Just, but I don't. Are there jobs after they get education in these poor countries though? That's a great know. question. So um, going to emigrate to uh, America and places like that. No, we don't get a lot of the people or alumni immigrating to America. Um, and you ask a good question about jobs. So there's not a lot of manufacturing jobs. There aren't a lot of traditional jobs that you think of when you think about employment in the United States. Um, but what we've seen, and we've gotten a lot of evaluations that have focused on this and collected data, is that there's a substantial improvement and increase in economic self-sufficiency. There's a lot more activity in microenterprise. Gender equity and gender balance goes way up based on education. Um, sanitation and hygiene goes way up based on what happens after we, after we build schools. Not because of what we did, but because of what they did. Um, and agricultural productivity improves. So the standard of living goes up tremendously. And community members are empowered to go on to secondary school and to make it to the next level and to go out and find jobs and contribute, become teachers like Ruthie became or, or other uh, possibilities in, in these different countries. But it unfortunately, they don't have, it's not like China or India where there's a, a massive you know, need for, for low-cost labor. Um, so, but, it, but we've seen dramatic improvement, and with education and infrastructure comes more economic investment. So it's slowly, slowly, but, but we're persistent. We keep going. We'll see what happens over time. Thanks. Yep. One of the tougher... What's that? As a what? As a like community worker, like yep. a person who do work in the community. I feel like one of the tougher aspects of getting started is like the support. Oh, so yeah. I'm wondering... And then the next challenge seems to be like sustainability. So I'm wondering like when you first got started, what was your support? Like how many people helped you? And then how do you sustain once it gets larger? Oh, good questions. And you get another question too. I'm sorry, I forgot about that. I'll, let me ask, answer these, and then we'll come back. All right, so, um, yes, it was extraordinarily difficult. I think it, it, uh, it definitely, starting up the organization, getting the funding and support almost crushed me, honestly. Um, I mean, we, we, especially in the first six months after I quit GE, my brother and I started it together, and we didn't just face rejection. You know, the people didn't just say no. They gave us three or four reasons why we would fail. And that's demoralizing. And I, and I was being demoralized. And, and um, it, you know, and it, but the, the worst part was that they were all legitimate. <laughs> the reasons why they thought we were going to fail. The, first, we had no experience in community development in developing countries. We had no experience building schools. We had no experience with youth development in American high schools, and clearly we had no experience fundraising. And, um, and, and, it, and it really weighed on, on us after a while, right? <laughs> it is funny in retrospect. At the time, it was brutal, though. Well, yeah, they didn't have to tell you you would fail. They would just said you would have had a hard steep learning curve. That would have been nice. <laughs> they weren't that generous. But, 
but I, I get it. In, 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 and I'd say the worst moment um, for me personally was uh, as, as all this was, as, as all these realities were coming to fruition of, of really the likelihood of failure, I got this fax message. You might not remember it because you're pretty young, but fax machines, right? <laughs> I got a fax machine. Uh, fa- our, our landlord had a fax machine. Uh, my brother and I were working out of the kitchen of this house, and um, he brought this fax message over, and it was from Malawi. It was from our partners in Malawi, Missile, you know, and Habitat for Humanity, and they, they had announced to the village, this guy's like, today we announced to the village that you're coming to build the school. And the community broke out in song and dance, and it went on for hours, especially with the kids. And I'm reading this, and my brother's reading this. Then the last line was the killer. It said, needless to say, if you fail to come, they'll be equally disappointed. Key word, obviously, failure. So, I, I mean, I was, I was in a pretty pretty dramatic, at least I felt like, it was a pretty dramatic downward spiral. And, um, you know, we just, my brother and I just hung in there, prayed an awful lot. And uh, what's that? It was just you two. Initially, yeah, yeah. So we just stayed in there and didn't realize how close we were to success. Had we, it would have been much easier for us. But we hung in there and, and, we had some volunteers that got behind us, 30 or 40 young people in their early, mid-20s. And um, my brother Dave had this idea of having a big fundraiser. You know, was, I think the Blues Brothers influenced him, the movie. So he's like, we'll get a band. We'll, get, we'll rent this auditorium. People come. You know, we'll, we'll get, raise all the money to build the schools. And I'm like, dude, I crunched the numbers. I was a finance guy. And, and the... Um, I was like, Dave, we need 120 people to break even. We don't even have the money for the deposit on this place. And he's like, we'll figure it out. So, so we started working on that and, um, you know, foolishly went forward with it. And then um, I got a meeting with the, I called out of desperation, the CFO of GE Capital, a guy named Jim Park. He's on the cover of Business Week. He's on our, the annual report. And they gave me a meeting, and I went in and met with him. And he took me up to meet with the CEO of GE. Now my heart's pounding. I'm in way over my head. This is like, I don't know what I'm going to do. But we get into this meeting, and, and um, it went pretty well, these meetings. And, and at the end, they said, okay, great. Come ahead and apply for a grant with the foundation. And I'm like, oh, I didn't say this, but I'm like, bah. you know, we've got a pile of rejection letters this thick from foundations. <laughs> so... So I know where this is their, it's a polite, you know, slow motion rejection. And, um, but I smiled and thanked them, and we applied and forgot about it. The well, same thing happened with McGraw-Hill companies. We met with the CEO, go ahead, apply for a grant. So um, the night before that fundraiser, we're looking for our RSVPs. We got 40 RSVPs. We need 120 to break even. We're going down. Big time. And a ball of, one of the RSVPs, though, is the CFO of GE. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's humiliation on top of, like, failure. And, and, um, and <laughs> like, we couldn't give the money back then, you know. It was too late. So we're putting things together. That night, like, it was, doors were opening at 8. We're, like, moping around, you know, trying to keep our spirits up. We had a lot of kegs, so we thought, okay, you know. Um, if all else fails, or when all else fails. So uh, at about 6 o'clock, I, I passed by the front door of this auditorium and, and from the inside, and there's a line of people. And 7 o'clock, it's like down the road, around the corner. And at 8 o'clock, we opened the doors. 400 people streamed in, man. It was insane. We had no idea that all these people were going to come. So we raised $17,000 that night, which to us was a pile of money. And then um, a few days later, we got a call from GE, and they were in for 25. And then McGraw gave us 10. So like in a three-week period, we went from negative to like 52 grand. And start, we didn't know if we had enough money to do it, but we started building the schools and just kept going. So a lot of rejection. We had no idea how close, you know, we were really overwhelmed by the failure. Had no idea how close we were. 
But we were close, and we learned that we just got to keep going. We can't give up. We got to keep going, got to keep going. And, and that lesson served us well, because we faced a lot of other obstacles, as it, as it turns out. So thank, and that, now, now, how do we sustain it? Track record, metrics. Um, you know, 624 schools, 85,000 kids, and then a lot of evaluations and data on what exactly is happening because of that work. With, our, with the youth that we work with, we work with about 4,000 kids on a monthly basis in our 62 high schools. We track and, and really measure all the impacts from how much service they do to the engagement, to the impact on attendance in the schools, to the impact on GPA, that sort of thing. So we measure, we track, and then we report. We're completely transparent. We, all of our financials are audited. Everything is out there. And the, most, the coolest part, or the most important part, which kind of goes against the grain of, of, uh, of the system right now, is that we invite everybody to come out and build a school. So we'll build 130 schools this year. 75 or 80 of them will have people like you in the village helping to build the school. So they experience it. They see it for, their, for, for first time. We take communities. We take companies. We take teams of volunteers in to work with the kids in our programs and to be moved and inspired by them. So um, it just it's, uh, it becomes contagious. I don't know. We just, and we got a great team of people like Skyler who, who really rally folks to, to, to support us. Thanks. Yeah, I rambled on way too long. If Friedman was here, I'd have got cut off an hour ago. You've had a second question, sir. Bill Clinton has a big global initiative, and he probably would do some of that work for Yeah, we've got to get to that guy. And, and Soros. They're not, they're not easy to... And Gates. I will do that. I will definitely do that. Well, the nonprofits don't don't have the money, though. We got They're like us. They're trying to find the money. They do. I, I'm kidding. We're we we've we're, we're okay. We're, we we uh, after 22 years, we've definitely figured out. How to how to raise the so don't I, I encourage you to donate if you'd like, um, but but thank you for that. Any other thoughts or questions, Darlene? No. Do you partner with organizations that are dealing with food insecurity and, and healthcare? Because I would think that you know both in this country as well as where you're working, there are probably you know many children who are facing. Hunger issues and absolutely. Issues. Uh, the, the, uh, thank you. Another very good question. So yeah, the answer is yes. We partner with many dozens and dozens of community-based organizations that deal with hunger and food security issues, because our students volunteer with those agencies, because they help to try and and stem the 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 and, and solve the problem of food security in American urban neighborhoods by not only building you know, and, and gardening, uh, building and maintaining uh, community gardens, but by providing fresh produce in food deserts, delivering it, encouraging people, so that, that we do a lot of partnering with community-based organizations so that our students can help to solve that particular problem. Um, was there another part of your question? Or was that it? Oh, yeah, I wanted to say that um, in the 62 high schools, on average, 90% of the students in these schools that we work with in the U.S. are on uh, free and reduced lunch, meaning they live below the U.S. poverty line. So they're in the thick of it, kids like Jimmy, right? And, and they are, so they, are, they have a vested interest in addressing food security issues and health and we see a lot of big problems with diabetes. You know, we see um, a lot of problems with asthma, you know, that are urban problems, urban challenges. Good questions. Yes? Um, I'm wondering if you track longer term outcomes with the program participants, like coach graduation rates or employment 
Um, we have not tracked the college graduation rates, though we've got a lot of alumni from the programs who are involved now um, as alumni. We didn't do a good job of collecting data in the 90s, and, and we've gotten a lot more rigorous about that, and we wish we had that kind of information. Um, and then incarceration, to our knowledge, none of the 35,000 plus kids that have gone through our programs are, are incarcerated. So we're grateful about that. Though um, one kid, um, Lockheed Grant, who just got involved in our program this year, he, uh, his, his, his grandfather, who's only 54 years old, is a guy named Howard Pappy Mason, who is in a supermax prison, like uh, 50 Cent and Nas written a lot of rap songs about this guy. He's famous. And, um, and his uncle's in Sing Sing. And his other uncle's inside, and his cousin D's inside. I mean, so uh, our kids ha are so impacted by the pipeline to prison, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's terrible. Jimmy Arzu, actually, um, I did have to go and uh, testify. He, he's in college, and he's doing okay, but he made a couple of bad choices. And um, he, there, he, he, the, the charges were dropped. But it's, man, they're on the edge all the time. You, you ask a very good question about that. Um, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I am so glad you asked that question. Um, so we do. We recruit. We work in schools where graduation rates are at about 50 or 60%, four-year graduation rates. <clears throat> um, so they're, every kid in the school is at risk of dropping out, basically. They got a 50% chance of graduating in four years. So we go to the schools where the, cri it, you know, where the crisis is, is most dramatic and most severe. And we recruit, that's how we, Jimmy got involved in the program. And we set up, um, we have two of our staff that are embedded in the school, working in the school every day, and work with a cohort of teachers and employ a service learning curriculum in the classroom, but especially after school. It's when we get involved with, you know, and, and really get the kids out in the community to work on making important change. Um, and so, it, you like at Jimmy's school, there's about 300 maybe 350 kids that go to the school, 150 of them are involved in Build On consistently. And then we do school-wide service initiatives, so we capture it twice a year, so every kid in the school gets involved. You can't escape from us in a school like his. <laughs> so that's how Jimmy, you know, it's the numbers game. Um, and then, um, how much time do we have? Time. So, I, you know, we, when the book came out in September, Simon & Schuster sent me on this 12-city book tour. And it was exciting and exhausting at the same time. And it did well. You know, we made all, all the bestseller lists. But, um, you know, I, I, halfway through the tour, I got the most unusual email from a guy who said there's 13 people inside Sing Sing, which is a maximum security prison in New York, that, that read the book and wanted to talk to me about it. And I'm like, okay. It didn't say if they liked the book or not. But I said, yeah, I would do that. So I go, I find myself inside a room, locked in a room with these 13 guys for three and a half hours. <clears throat> and and, um, and, and uh, the first thing, the introductions included, like, what they were convicted of and how much time they'd served. Every, every guy was convicted of murder. And uh, they were in for 25 to life. And I'm like, ooh. And, and there's no guard in the room. <laughs> Luckily, the, they liked the book. So I was, I, was, I was grateful. And so I'm talking to these guys for two hours about the book. And they're asking all these questions, like really interesting questions that I didn't expect, like about our first school in Nepal, you know, and how the women carried the cement up the mountain. So how did they do that, you know? So we're going on about that. And after a couple hours, I'm like, Got to shift gears. So tomorrow I'm in the South Bronx, I say to these guys. You guys are all from the Bronx. I'm talking to kids. You got wisdom here. What do you got to say? I'm going to write every word down. I'm going to share it with our kids tomorrow. <clears throat> and um, 
then they went off. It was amazing. Every, every one of those guys had something, I thought, very profound to say. And, and I wrote it all down. The one guy I want to tell you about is this guy, Eric Benson. So I, he, 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 he starts by saying, you know, when I was 17 years old, I was in a gang. I joined for the same reason everybody else joins, because I want to be part of something bigger. You know, and, and, and he said, I never did drugs, but I moved a lot of drugs in my community. And I knew I was killing my community. And then he said, one day I killed a man named Wayne Thompson. And I'm writing it down, and I have this long pause, and I look up, and he's in tears, this guy. This guy, Eric Benson, he's in tears. And he's, he, he, he says, you know, that day two little boys lost their father. Dwayne Thompson had a five-year-old. I had a six-month-old. He said, when you talk to those kids tomorrow, plead with them to invite everybody into this program, especially gang members. He said, you could save somebody's life. And, um, I mean, that was a heavy weight, I felt like. And so... I definitely delivered the message and kept going and going and, you know, taking it to all of our schools. And I kept going back to Sing Sing. I like it. I mean, those guys, it was like going to church. I loved it. And, and, um, and we, have, we have now, I got the superintendent, that's what they call the warden. Um, the superintendent's completely on board. We're going to build out a partnership with Sing Sing. And these, 10 out of these 13 guys, three of them got transferred, but 10 of them, are, we're collaborating with them to build a three-part curriculum, A, on how to recruit gang members to get in the program. Kids like Jimmy are affiliated and, and get in, but it's, you know, they don't know how to get other guys off. So we challenged them back and said, okay, you show us, because they were all gangbangers, you show us how do we get gang members in and, and people at risk of dropping out. How do you get them off the street and into the program? So that's one of the pillars. Another is going to be... Um, anti-gun violence. Two of our kids got shot in the last month in Chicago. One's in ICU, can't feel his feet. You know, it's, it's nuts. It's insanity. And, and um, so these guys have raised $3,000 inside already for a gun buyback. And we're going to organize a, a big, we're going to kick it off with a huge rally in October and um, a peace march and hopefully... It, so that the second part is an, a sustained anti-gun violence campaign. And the third part is where our high school kids, like Jimmy, are going to mentor uh, little kids that have parents that are incarcerated because the probabilities are astronomically high for them. So it's, it's, uh, we're going to get better at that soon. Another long answer. How are we doing? What, what do we... One more question. If I wanted to uh, start tomorrow uh, to get involved in this, uh, how do I do that? Just, I'd start just tomorrow? Yeah. Why wait? Let's do it tonight. I mean, get involved tonight. So, so, so here's, here's, here are some immediate ways you can get involved. First, Skylar Badnock. Afterwards, please talk to Skylar and make sure you guys exchange information. So we can set up a chapter in Baltimore. We can organize community. We can work with the Quakers too. Absolutely. Quakers and the Black Panthers. What a combo! I like it. Bobby Seal. We got to get him. I'm really glad you're doing that. And, but if you're not a Quaker and if you're not a Black Panther, you can still get involved. All right. And so <laughs> we can start up a chapter in Baltimore. And you can work and, and uh, go out and build schools. And there, we have, I think, over 100 chapters, which are basically a chapter is just a community of people that raise the money and then go build schools. It costs us $30,000 to build one of those schools for about a, that holds 150 kids. And, uh, yeah, they'll be, they're like 70 or so teams from our chapters are going to go out and build schools this year from around the country. Build overseas. So, so build overseas. And we take you and host you. 
you know, take you into the community and you, you spend time there. To get kids from, so to get kid, go ahead. Well, if you want to, we if you want to get our set up our after school programs, which I described in Baltimore, that takes a little more time. We can't do that overnight, but it starts with a chapter. Boston, we had no intention of setting up programs in Boston, but the community organized, and they raised money, and they started sending their kids out to build schools from Boston Public Schools, from some of the tougher schools. They got more and more into it, and now they've gotten the, the resources together so that we can set up, we've set up and can sustain programming in some of the tougher Boston Public Schools. That takes time to get to that point. But it's certainly a possibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sky, come on up here, man. You're being awfully quiet, dude. You got to earn your money over here. So, so the way a chapter works is you can go on our website and you you, you register, become a chapter, and we have a lot of support available. In fact, we have a huge conference coming up. In two weeks. It's in San Francisco. Sorry. Um, But I'm not far from here. I'm actually based in D.C. right now. Uh, So I I made my way up this way regularly. But Jim's right. I mean, we have have groups from from high school students to college students to corporate executives to families to affinity groups, church groups, uh, who are all all part of this program. And the whole idea is to not just... Uh, do passive philanthropy and, and donate money, but to get involved, um, and that's been a really successful model with us. And what we, what we know is that people come back and they're they're trained. They feel like these trips are transformational. I mean, when we run these trips, they're not they're not designed to be volunteerism. They're not designed to be easy. What we what we think it's hard work. Are, yeah, what we think they are is, is really they're like college level courses in international development, responsible volunteering, and cross cultural exchange, all in one. Uh, they're really thoughtful. We've been we've been running these trips. We've been refining them, improving the programs. So it's not just you're building a school, but you're also learning a ton about why education is important for development, about culture, you're living with host families, and that's very that's unique to other organizations who you know some of them who uh, you know you might go overseas, but you're staying in hotel rooms, you're not really connected. You stay with a, you stay with people like Felicia. Yeah. Yes, I love her. That's awesome. 30 to build the school, yeah. And then how long does it take? How long are you there? Uh, between one and two weeks in the village, living it, like embedded in the community. Now, we, we're very purposeful about, like, we don't keep you there for three months, which is how long it takes to build the whole school um, for a lot of reasons. But the biggest one is it's the community's project. And if we're there as Americans throughout, then they lose ownership. We want them to own it. Our teams in the in the we're in Mali, Malawi, Senegal, Burkina Faso, and Africa. We're in Haiti, Nicaragua, and Nepal, and we have national teams set up in those countries. So Malians in Mali, and and and, and we have three or four of our staff that live in the village, local staff that live in the village, skilled labor, construction supervisors that work with the community over the duration of it. But we only have you know, Americans or Europeans there. For or Middle Easterners now from Qatar and Dubai, and um, they're only there for a week or ten days, maybe two weeks, which I think you'll agree when you, once you go over there is plenty. <laughs> um, but you live in the, with a host family, you eat local food. We we have um, local cooks that are trained in very sanitary preparation. We also have wilderness first responder certified staff that go with you. Um, so that there's every medical precaution is taken. We have satellite phones if necessary. Cell phone coverage is better and better. And emergency evacuation vehicles, and then an entire curriculum built out for you while you're there. Uh, as Skyler pointed out. Average time here. About a week for, for most teams. We've been 10 days. For the high school students, two weeks. But what most groups do is they set up a team of about 10 to 15 people because that makes the fundraising. 2000 bucks yeah. each. And we're looking at, like, we see people do so many Yeah, you can take a team of 15 people if you want. Yeah. Okay. Are you going to Costa Rica anytime soon? Who's the 
Nah, Costa Rica, that would be fun. Good. Yeah. Oh, and we have Jacques Initiative, University of Maryland, and they're doing it by fun, by doing block parties. So Man, we got to give you some build on stuff. I like it. You're, you're, you're spreading the word. Awesome. Sky, we gotta. What's your name, ma'am? We gotta get her. We gotta get Ann some some build on stuff. So when she's passing it out, yeah, and give her the pamphlets that that Joanna put together. So why don't we why don't we shift gears? Do you guys um, book signing? We're, I'm happy to sign some books and. Uh, chat a little bit more. I'm going to take this off. I think the podcast is officially over now. Thank you, everybody, on the podcast.